Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Chris Degenia on Talk Show. This is Friday, March 18th, 2011. Hello. Praise Yahweh. Last week I decided to take a um, more or less of a breather, right, and and just recap some things and, and have Clifton on, and that worked out very well, and a lot of people gave me positive feedback about the program. And and we just wanted to, yeah, you know, hold up the, the my, my progress through the revelation for a minute and and give people to and and give people a moment to reflect about everything I had presented so far and and how it doesn't fit in with the futurism of the of the Catholic Church and mainstream churchianity, right? Well, which is um that there's a lot of people in in identity. That, that still cling to this futurism, that there's going to be three and a half years of tribulation and a personal antichrist at, at some point in the future, which is always just around the corner. And, and the truth is that we've had 2,500 years of tribulation and, and thousands and upon thousands of antichrists. And, and we see that right in the, the epistles of John, where he wrote that even at his time, many antichrists have already been born into the world. The Antichrist are all those who oppose Jesus Christ, period. They're Antichrist. All the Jews, they're Antichrist. All the all, all the um all, all of the Muslims, they're Antichrist. They don't fit into the covenant, so so we can't expect them to be anything but Antichrist. And and we don't want them in the covenant because the covenant's only made with the children of Israel. And 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 that's the way it is. That, that's life. That, that's our, our biggest lesson in, in this world is to learn that God is sovereign. That this is not white supremacism. This is God supremacism. His word has to prevail. We have to recognize his sovereignty. The purpose of this earth, of, of this age, is because our ancient forebears denied and rejected his sovereignty. Okay, Revelation chapter 13 capped off a lengthy series of prophecies which took us through Israel's 2,520 years of punishment. During the first 1,260 years, roughly, God's people were ruled over by a series of tyrannical empires, wheresoever the children of Adam dwell. Of course, those people outside of those empires weren't the children of Adam. During the second 1260 years, God's people were ruled over by the office and institution of the papacy, for the most part. We see how all of this correlates to like prophecies in Daniel chapters 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Here we shall proceed with Revelation chapter 14. 14.1 from the Christogenian New Testament. And I looked and behold... The Lamb stood upon, upon Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written upon their foreheads. And I heard a sound from out of heaven, like a sound of many waters, and like a sound of great thunder. And the sound which I heard, like lyre players playing on their lyres. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000, 
those having been purchased from the earth. These are they who have not been defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they, I'm sorry, these are they who follow the Lamb wherever he should go. These have been purchased from among men, a first fruit for Yahweh and for the Lamb, and in their mouths a lie is found. They are blameless. So many people in modern-day Christianity or churchianity claim to be one of these 144,000. They know who they are. They know the song. Well, well, they'd better be virgins. If the song is literal, the virginity is literal. Here we see a vision of the 144,000 that were first mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. These were those men who were sealed by Yahweh. Men who were kept from the troubles and pollutions of this world and from the wrath that was to come upon the Roman Empire, as I had explained at that time. And that was the context of Revelation chapter 7. And we see them here again. Some commentators have claimed that these will be the government of the kingdom of God. However, that idea is not explicitly found in the text. Others have claimed that these are the kingdom of God, and that that would be it. Jehovah's Witnesses at one point. However, it is clear in the text that these are only the first fruits of those whom he has purchased. The first fruits of the children of Israel. And, as it is evident in Revelation chapter 7 at verse 9, these 144,000 are followed by an innumerable multitude who were clothed in white garments. They had to be the white garments of Revelation chapter 6, which they themselves washed in the blood of the Lamb. The promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be an innumerable multitude, not merely 144,000 but as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore. Genesis 22.17, Genesis 32.12, and other verses in the book of Genesis contain that promise. In the book of Job, at 19.25, Job is said to have proclaimed, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. Psalm 74.2 is a plea to Yahweh to remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, where thou hast dwelt. Yahweh is described as the redeemer of the children of Israel quite often in the prophecy of Isaiah, and also at Psalms 25.22, 49.15, 78.35, and at Jeremiah 50, verse 34, and elsewhere. It is explained in Isaiah chapter 50 that the children of Israel, who are the peculiar treasure of God and his possession since the days of the Exodus, had sold themselves into sin, where it says, For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother, meaning the nation as a whole, which is the wife of Yahweh, for your transgressions is your mother put away. The meaning of redemption in the New Testament is that God, Yahweh, through Christ, would purchase his people back 
from their transgression, for which he had long ago put them away, as we see in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. Therefore, at Luke 1, verse 68, Zechariah is recorded as having said, and I mean Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, right? Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited, about, visited and brought about redemption for his people. Zechariah and Luke, who recorded that, they understood that this was the fulfillment of the law of the kinsman redeemer found at Leviticus. Chapter 25, verses 48 and 49, and elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's repeated in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. At Galatians 4, verse 5, Paul states, chapter 4, verse 5, Paul states that Yahshua's purpose was that he would redeem those subject to the law, that we would recover the position of sons. He hasn't come to redeem anybody else. We meaning the children of Israel, whom the Galatians were indeed descended from, being Celts. They were the descendants of the Kimaroi, the of the Assyrian deportations, the Israelites deported by the Assyrians. Here in the Revelation, although in this chapter the Greek word is purchased and not redeemed, the same purpose of the New Covenant is stated once more. In the same manner Paul told the Corinthians, Descendants of the Dorian Greeks, the Dorians having also emigrated from ancient Israel, that, quote, ye are bought with a price at 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23. So that's the meaning of redemption. Redemption is the buying back of something that you once had, but now somebody else possessed. The Israelites sold themselves for their transgressions, the blood of Christ buys them back. Redemption in the New Testament can never be taken beyond that idea of kinsman redemption in the Old Testament. Verse 6, And I saw another messenger flying in midair, having an eternal good message, or gospel, to announce before those sitting upon the earth and before every nation and tribe and tongue and people saying with a great voice, you must fear Yahweh and you must give honor to him, because the hour of his judgment has come, and you must worship he who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Revelation chapters 14 and 15 are a warning for our present time. This era of self-government, as we shall see, and the loosing of Satan from the pit, which we have endured since the French Revolution. That's the time we're in. This shall be discussed at length with Revelation chapter 20, the Reformation, the diminishing of the papacy, and the decentralization of power in Europe, as we saw in Revelation chapter 13, invited all of the social revolutions of the 19th century from the first French Revolution to the Bolshevik Revolution, and even into America, the social revolutions of more recent decades were orchestrated by the same people, the Antichrist Jews, who have been at the root of every single one of those revolutions. And they conceal that, they conceal that through the media which they have come to control. 
Revelation chapter 14 begins to set the stage for the time of Jacob's trouble, that last period of world history before the kingdom of Yahweh is finally established. Ever since the missionaries of the post-Reformation period, where there was witnessed, as we discussed here several weeks ago in, in Revelation chapters 10 and 11, where there was witnessed the return to the word of God by a significant number of his people, ever since then has the eternal gospel gone out into the entire world, chastising people to repent and to return to the God of the Bible. The time of great trouble which this passage introduces is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 30. Especially verse 7 which says, Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, quote, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. Now, now right there we know that this promise is to the descendants of the ancient Israelites and to no one else, right? And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time shall thy people be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, the book of life. So we see the book of life is also mentioned by Daniel. If you're not written in the book of life, you go into the lake of fire. This is the day of judgment. It has already been going on for many decades now, actually about two centuries. And true Israel shall be delivered. In the 19th and 20th centuries, there were several Michaels, among them Tsar Nicholas II and Adolf Hitler, and they're taking a stand against the beast and against the international merchants of world Jewry did indeed cause such a time of trouble, which we see described by Jeremiah in chapter 30 and by Daniel in chapter 12, verse 8. And another second messenger followed, saying, Babylon the greatest fallen has fallen. She who has made all the nations drink from the wine of the passion of her fornication. One message that the original Protestants professed, that men must serve God and not mammon, has been distorted. Now, many of the Protestant denominations, in their gospel of personal enrichment, encourage people to pursue mammon and consider it godly. Here it is evident that Babylon, here it is announced that Babylon has fallen. And in the discussing chapters, seven, in, in the in, in discussing chapters 17 through 19, it shall be evident that Babylon is a multifaceted world system centered upon international trade and the political, social, and religious systems which facilitate that trade. While Babylon has not yet fallen, here it is announced that Babylon is indeed fallen. 
as the scriptures often announce things prophetically as having happened even though it is long before the actual events transpire. In this sense, Paul said of Yahweh God at Romans 4.17 that he calls things not existing as existing because once they are in his word, they shall indeed exist. It is fully evident in our recent history, that of the past century especially, that the global commercial system, particularly the international banks of London and New York, have, quote, made all the nations to drink from the wine of the passion of her fornication by making war with all of those nations which do not join their system of central banks. All of those nations which have resisted the Rothschild-controlled central banking system have either been made to succumb over time or outright destroyed, such as Tsarist Russia and Nazi Germany. Unto this day, even the Arab nations and this all, all the so-called third world nations are also being forced into this Jewish banking system. I'll discuss the facets of Mystery Babylon at length in chapters 17 and 18 next week. Verse 9. And another, a third messenger followed them, saying with a great voice, If one worships the beast and its image and receives an engraved mark upon his forehead or upon his hand, then he shall drink from the wine of the wrath of Yahweh, which is poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented in the lake, uh, I'm sorry, in fire and sulfur before the holy messengers or angels and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for the eternal ages. And they who worship the beast in its image and one who receives the engraved mark of its name shall not have rest day and night. Thus is the patience of the saints, they keeping the commandments of Yahweh in the faith of Yahshua. The mark of the beast is not necessarily a physical mark. The people described in Revelation chapter 13, who bore this mark, those who were trapped under the power of the papacy, which describes nearly all of the children of Israel through the later medieval period, those people had no practical choice but to worship the beast, the papacy of the time, in order that they may survive in their communities However, now the power of the papacy is eclipsed, and the nations of Europe have for the most part entered into a period of self-rule, the monarchical powers, the powers of the monarchies being diminished, the ancient feudal system being broken, and the parliamentary democracies being established. As the scripture says in Jeremiah chapter 31, the children of Israel now choose their governors from among themselves. The new god of the 19th century is capitalism. The people are no longer compelled to worship the beast, but rather they have every opportunity in this period of self-rule to seek the kingdom of heaven, to seek to live by the word of God. For those who choose the beast system over God, they shall be punished and the smoke of their torment is everlasting. They shall not have rest day or night. I would not read that to believe, to, to, I would not believe that necessarily means that they themselves are going to be eternally tormented. 
However, the smoke may only serve as an eternal remembrance of their torment. We'll see later on in, in the book of Revelation, it says, of the people of God to come out from among them, lest ye suffer her punishments. And I believe this is referring to the very same thing. Revelation chapters 17 through 19 fully elucidate that the beast is related to the world's mercantile system, just as bankers, merchants, and criminals, such as the Borgias and the De Medicis, rose to the power of the papacy, and they were Jews. Therefore, those worshiping the beast can only be those who have forgotten God and who have forsaken his commandments in order that they may worship and pursue the rewards of the mercantile system, the rewards of mammon, in the political, social, and religious systems which facilitate the conduct of the beast system. And even more so, worship of the beast may have a greater literal meaning. Here it must be mentioned that the demise of the papacy as an empirical authority over Europe took place in concert with the French Revolution. The French Revolution saw the Jew gain an equal citizenship with the Christian in the polity of France. And with Napoleon, that circumstance had been exported to the, West, to the rest of Western Europe. This is referred to as the Jewish emancipation. This is the final release of Satan from the pit. A process which had actually started three centuries sooner. With this period, a strange new religion began to take a foothold in Europe, that which is called secular humanism. Secular, secular humanism, don't underestimate it, it's the religion taught in all of our universities and academic centers today. It, it, even if it's not labeled as secular humanism, it has worked its way down into our most basic elementary schools, and it's taught to all of our children. Secular humanism is a rejection of the supernatural or any spiritual authority, and therefore it seems to be a revival of the ancient religion of the Sadducees. It was the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, who were the high priests who crucified the Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Secular humanism arose from the deism and the anti-clericalism of the Enlightenment. Let me make a side note that the founders of the American Republic were Christians who also rejected anti-clericalism, but they remained Christians that can be proven from their writings. Among them are Franklin, Jefferson, Adams, and, and Hancock, I believe, and, and the evidence I had presented last October in, in the um, October 10th programs that Eli and I had done. So, so even though they rejected clericalism or, or the, the, the established organized priesthood, they remained Christians. In Europe, they rejected clericalism and turned to humanism. Secular humanism arose from the deism and anti-clericalism of the Enlightenment. The various so-called secular movements of the 19th century and the acceptance of science as a discipline which may explain existence, as if that idea could possibly have any merit. 
Secular humanism is therefore the rejection of God and the ideal guiding philosophy for the international merchant. It glorifies man, who without God is little but a beast, and promotes him to the position of being his own God. It is truly the worship of the beast. The word secular is from the Latin secularis, meaning of an age, and therefore it means worldly. The Christian is told to reject the world, James 4.4, Romans 12.1 and 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 12, chapter 10, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 32. I'm sure there are many more scriptures that tell the Christian to reject the world and the things of this world. Because the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. Therefore, secular humanism is an antichrist religion a religion for Satan, and it is also the worship of the beast. This view of secular humanism is not new. The Oxford English Dictionary records the use of the word humanism by an English clergyman in 1812 to indicate those who believe in the mere humanity as opposed to the divine nature of Christ. That's from the 7th edition. According to Wikipedia, After the French Revolution, the idea that human virtue could be created by human reason alone, independently from traditional religious institutions, attributed by opponents of the revolution, the French Revolution, to Enlightenment philosophy such as Rousseau, I would say that's a correct attribution, was violently attacked by influential religious and political conservatives such as Edmund Burke and Joseph de Maistre as a deification or idolatry of man. So we see the rise of the religion which deifies man right at the same time that we see the diminishing of the tyrannical institutions of Europe by which is met the papacy and the monarchies. And also at the same time which we see the emancipation of the Jew. This is indeed the age of Satan. Also, according to Wikipedia, the anarchist Proudhon, best known for declaring that property is theft, and a leading figure in revolutionary France, used the word humanism to describe a cult which deifies humanity. And Ernest Renan, in his book, The Future of Knowledge, starts on 1848, he was another revolutionary figure in Europe, states, quote, It is my deep conviction that pure humanism will be the religion of the future. That is, the cult of all that pertains to man, all of life sanctified and raised to the level of a moral value. And he is correct. It has become the religion of the future. And let me make a side note. Secular humanism has become the religion of the secular world, if I have to put it that way, of the mainstream world, because it's the religion of the Talmud. The Jews believe that they, the Jewish people, are their own Messiah. They could never convince us of that, so they're taking a back door and convincing us that man is God. The eventual outcome is equivalent if you think about it.
I'm sorry, I need a drink. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from out of heaven saying, Right, blessed are those dead among the number of the prince who are dying from now on. Yeah, says the Spirit, that they shall have rest from their labors, for their works follow with them. Where I have from now on, I believe the King James Version has, from henceforth. The use of the phrase, from now on, indicates that there is still a lot of history left in this last age. And it also supports the statement made in these comments above at verses 6 and 7, that this chapter is setting the stage for the last period in the history of this present age. If one dies a Christian at this time, one will indeed be rewarded for one's faith, and rewarded whether one is conscious of it or not, since Christianity is really much more than a simple profession. Christianity is a way of life which many of us live regardless of what we profess with our tongues, since the laws of our God are written on our hearts. Many of the children of God behave like perfectly good Christians, although they are turned off from Judaized churchianity, and therefore they do not profess to be Christians. Verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And he sitting upon the cloud like, like a son of man, not like the son of man. He's sitting on the, on the cloud, looks like a son of Adam. Having upon his head a gold crown, and in his hand a sharp scythe. And another messenger came out from the temple, crying out with a great voice to him sitting upon the cloud, Swing your scythe and reap. I think that could also be translated sickle. Because the hour to reap has come. Because parched is the harvest of the earth. And he sitting upon the cloud, cast his sides upon the earth and harvested the earth. The King James Version has the exclamation at verse 15 as, For the harvest of the earth is ripe, just like the second harvest which follows in verses 17 through 20. But the Greek word for ripe is akmadzo where it follows in verse 19, 19 and 20. Akmazo, ripe are her grapes. That word is akmazo. I'm sorry, it's in verse 18. Akmazo does indeed mean ripe when it is used of growing fruit. That's in verse 18. Here in verse 15, the verb is exeranthe. A passive form of the verb say rahino, which means to be parched. Something that is parched cannot, and as far as I'm concerned, cannot be considered ripe, but rather it describes something which is withered. The parched grapes, or the withered grapes, seem to represent those same allegorical tares which we see in the parable of the wheat and the tares told by Yahshua Christ in Matthew chapter 13. The ripe grapes of the harvest which follows, which is mentioned below in verse 17, those ripe grapes seem to represent the wheat. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, 
The wheat represent the children of God, the true seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, who are indeed the descendants of Adam. The tares represent the seed of the serpent. They were planted as soon as the householder planted the field of wheat. In other words, through Cain. The seed of the serpent are the children of the devil who were planted by the enemy and descended through Cain from the serpent. We're talking about the garden of God here. Verse 17. And another messenger came out from the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp scythe. And another messenger came out from the altar. He having authority over the fire and uttered with a great voice to him having the sharp scythe saying, Swing your sharp scythe and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, because ripe are her grapes. Notice that this angel has authority over the fire. It will be explained below that fire is the trials of this life. So we can connect this harvest with the ripe grapes of Yahweh, of the vine of God, who have suffered the trials of this life, right? Swing your sharp scythe and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, because ripe are her grapes. And that word really means ripe. And the messenger cast his scythe to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine vat of the wrath of Yahweh. And the wine vat was trampled outside of the city, and blood came out from the wine vat as high as the bridles of horses for a thousand 600 stades. Eight stades are in a mile, I believe. The ripe grapes represent the harvest of the wheat, as it also does in the harvest of the parched grapes described above. The swinging of the scythe represents the wrath of Yahweh, which is manifested in the wars and the tumults of this age. The wars and the tumults of this age have been far greater than those of previous ages. Christians are promised that they will not suffer greatly in these wars and other disasters so long as they do not worship the beast. Chapter 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and wondrous, seven messengers having the seven last plagues that in them the wrath of Yahweh is fulfilled. Verse 2, And I saw like glass a sea mixed with fire, there's that fire again, and those prevailing from the beast, and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing upon the glass sea, holding lyres, musical instruments, guitars, from Yahweh. Not exactly guitars, but musical instruments like guitars. The glass scene mixed with fire represents the trials of this life, the fire which each of us must pass through. That this fire represents these earthly trials which we endure is evident in 1 Peter, verses 3 through 10, and here I will quote the King James Version. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or, or begotten us from above, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter knew what this was talking about. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation or preservation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Here it is evident that Peter is speaking only to the children of Israel, the subjects of all these prophecies exclusively. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So we see that the trials of this world are indeed the fires which we must pass through. This is also evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we find at verse 11, quote, for, other, for another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. In other words, the trials of this life reveal when we face them and when we endure them, they reveal what our works are, and what's in our hearts. If any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive the reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. All Israel will be saved. Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Your works are great and wonderful, Prince Yahweh Almighty. Your ways are righteous and true, King of the nations. Who should not be afraid, Prince, and honor your name? Because you are the only Holy One, because all the nations shall come, and they shall worship before you, because your judgments have been made manifest. These people are not the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7 and 14. Neither are they the innumerable multitude of Revelation chapter 7. Rather, these people are a new multitude, those Israelites from among the nations who in the, these last days have prevailed over the beast by not worshiping the beast. All of the nations which worship Yahweh are, in the biblical context, all of those nations of people which are written in the book of life, since all those who are not written in the book of life go into the lake of fire. The distinction must remain between the sheep nations and the goat nations, 
of Matthew chapter 25. The sheep nations go on to eternal reward, and the goat nations go on to eternal punishment. The lake of fire, which in this case is different from the trials of fire of this life. The lake of fire represents permanent destruction, since the beast, the false prophet, hell, and death are also tossed into the lake of fire and share that same fate. If we think that people tossed into the lake of fire can be purified and made clean, then we have to really stretch the imagination and think that hell and death can be purified and made clean. And, and that's just, I'm sorry, that's not possible. The lake of fire is a, it's a, an allegory which represents a cessation of existence. Verse 5. Revelation chapter 15. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony opened in heaven. And the seven messengers, having the seven plagues, came out from the temple clothed in clean bright linen and girt about the chest with gold belts. And one from among the four living creatures had given to the seven messengers seven gold bowls filled with the wrath of Yahweh who lives for the eternal ages, and the temple filled with smoke from the effulgence of Yahweh and from his power. And no one was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven messengers are completed. The tabernacle of testimony must be related to the ark of his testament mentioned at the end of chapter 11. There it was remarked that the word of God is the true ark of his testament, since it holds all of the promises made to Israel. And in that section of the Revelation, we saw the opening of the little book, the Reformation, and the deliverance of Scripture into the hands of men. And the two witnesses, Israel and Judah, who fulfilled their testimony by fulfilling the prophecies concerning them, that they would indeed turn back to Yahweh and his word through Christ their adoption of Christianity and their embrace of the word of God in the Reformation was indeed the fulfillment of such prophecies. One example of this is found in Hosea 2.7, where speaking of the deported Israelites, Hosea says, And she, meaning the nation of Israel, shall follow after her lovers. She was put off in, in idolatry, fornication. But she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, Yahweh, for then it was better with me than now. We really think it's grass is greener on the other side and go off into idolatry and realize it's not so good after all and want to return to our first God, to our real true God. In chapter 16, with the seven vials, we return to the last portions of the historical prophecies in the Revelation, which have already been accomplished, and which cover the last age leading up to the fall of Babylon, which we all wish was tomorrow, right? Verse 16. I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a great voice come out from the temple saying to the seven messengers, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of Yahweh into the earth. 
Here will be discussed not definite and detailed historic events, as we witnessed in chapters 4 through 13, but an overall picture of Christian society, because it may be discerned that these prophecies are indeed a premonition of the overall state of Christian society as it exists after the passing of the two beasts which we saw portrayed in Revelation chapter 13. And, and let me say as an aside that the book of Revelation opened in chapters 2 and 3 with the seven churches. And a lot of people think that they are seven stages in the history of the Christian Israelite people. And, and I don't agree with that because the attitudes of all seven of those assemblies, those first seven churches, the attitudes of all seven of them have been with us all through time. Therefore, I think that as those seven churches portrayed the general state of the first era in Christianity, the general state and attitudes of the people, I believe that these seven vials or plagues portray the general state of the people of God at the end of the Christian age, the end of this age before the fulfillment and, and the culmination of our covenant and, and its the, the commencement of the next age. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 2. And the first went out and poured his bowl out into the earth, and there came a bad and grievous sore upon the men who have the engraved mark of the beast and who worship its image. With the French Revolution and the age of Napoleon... The end of the old feudal order had come for certain. The end of ecclesiastical control over the morals and behavior of the people, a power which was often abused under the Romish Catholic Church system anyway, that had also come. That had also come to an end. The people would now generally be left to their own devices under the guise of the so-called free and modern society. Yet with the introduction of mass-produced Bibles into the average home, the common person was also given a choice to follow the word of God or to succumb to the devices of the society. The Jew, Satan let out of the pit, as we shall see in Revelation chapter 20. The Jew is now an equal in European society. This happened with Napoleon. That's when this started. And the Jew will use his new status to promote all sorts of vice and corruption. Modern versions of the Canaanite idols, which his father, his fathers had once used to allure the children of Israel into sin. They're still successful at it today. Furthermore, free enterprise is endangered and shall succumb to an entirely usury-based economy organized under capitalism and orchestrated by the Jewish banking families of Europe, notably the Rothschilds. Under a usury-based capitalist economy, the enemies of Christ would gain more and more power and influence 
enabling them to finance ever stronger attacks against Christendom and from within rather than from without. In order to help understand what is being described here, a reading from Ezekiel chapter 18 shall be presented, along with a reading of part of Jeremiah chapter 31, and then a reading from the book of Joshua. Ezekiel is writing at a time when practically all of the Israelites, along with most of Judah, were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. Ezekiel is among the captives who were relocated and settled in a part of northern Syria. Those taken captive by the Assyrians would never return to Palestine. Instead, they would, for the most part, eventually migrate through the Caucasus Mountains and eventually emerge as the Sakans and the Cimmerians, forerunners of the modern Germanic peoples. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says Yahweh God, ye shall not have any more occasion to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and is not eaten upon the mountains, neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has come near to a menstruous woman, and has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has spoiled none by violence, has given his bread to the hungry, and has covered the naked with the garment, he that has not given forth upon usury, neither has taken any increase, that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man, has walked in my statutes, and has kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, says Yahweh God. Among the sins which men will die for are idolatry, fornication, adultery, and usury, which is what the language described here is describing, along with a lack of brotherly love, here depicted as fair treatment of the debtor and provision for the needy. The admonition in Ezekiel chapter 18 is then repeated for a son who does engage in such behavior and for a son's son who does not in order to demonstrate that the same family may have members in, who sin in this manner and members who do not. But from this time, only the sinners will be punished, and not the entire family. But at one time, entire families, and, and these, let, let me say as, as an aside, that these are instructions, obviously, given to the children of Israel of the dispersion. That at one time, entire families were punished for the sins of a man is evident in Scripture, and because it also helps to explain other aspects which are being discussed here, a passage from the story of Achan found in Joshua chapter 7, verses 20 through 26, 
shall be read. Verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hidden the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran away. They ran unto the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel, and they laid them out before Yahweh. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garment and the wedge, the wedge of gold, and his sons and his daughters, and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Yahweh shall trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire. And after they had stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So Yahweh turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. So it is evident that Achan's entire family was destroyed for his transgression. And as an aside, I will say that the Persians, who were also Semites, had the very same custom. If you insulted the nation of Persia, they would destroy your whole village and all your kin. That's recorded by the historian Herodotus. If Achan were to keep his gold and silver, and if Achan were to keep his Babylonish garment, as Clifton Emmerheiser first pointed out to me, it was inevitable that he was to become a banker, for that was the only use that those things would have had. In ancient Babylon, the temples of the pagan idols also served as banks, among other things. The priests of those temples would loan out the offerings which they received at usury. Achan would have had no other purpose if he were able to keep these things. Another passage which lends insight into this passage of the Revelation is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 30. Quote, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith Yahweh. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. This passage in Jeremiah precedes a passage beginning at, at verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, which promises the consummation of the new covenant. Therefore, it is a prophecy for this very time. Sour grapes in Scripture are associated with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 32. 
For their vine is the vine of Sodom and the fields and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Here it is evident that the sour grapes represent the fornication and those other sins which were prominent at Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are the sins of Ezekiel chapter 18, which are instructions to the Israelites of the dispersion, sins which we are told not to commit lest we die. The day would come when Yahweh would sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. That day began when the Jew was emancipated and allowed into the community of the European nations as citizens equal to Christians. That happened in the time of Napoleon. Satan was loosed from the pit or the ghettos of Europe in order that he may deceive the entire world. In Revelation chapter 13, we saw that it was the dragon which gave his power to the beast. The dragon is also identified with Satan in Revelation chapter 12. For many centuries, the Jew remained in the background as the court physician or as the private banker or in some other panderous capacity, attempting to compromise the nobility of Europe and often succeeding. Through the usurpation of organizations such as the Jesuits and Masonry, now the Jew could overthrow and supplant the nobility of Europe, which began with the French Revolution. The capitalist system requires usury, which is considered to be a great evil to Yahweh our God. The capitalist system has brought with it International commerce, globalism, multiculturalism, and all of the other devices of the Jew used to weaken Christendom and to flood the Christian nations with godless aliens, the beasts of Jeremiah chapter 31. It will be seen below that these ideas, along with the idea of a society without God, were first broadcast and promoted through the Christian world beginning throughout the Christian world, beginning with the French Revolution. The result is the modernist and mixed-race society in which we live today. Worship of the beast and the taking of the mark of the beast is therefore the worship of the system of man brought upon the Christian world by the enemies of God. Unlike the mark of the beast, placed upon man during the period of the papacy, Revelation chapter 13, this time it is voluntarily, it is voluntary and man takes it upon himself. Christians are told to despise the world, and today most Christians fully embrace the world, even believing that to be Christian. They are severely misled. Chapter 16, verse 3. And the second poured his bowl out into the sea, and it became blood as if dead, and every soul of life which was in the sea. This to me represents the spiritual life in the Christian nations and the death of it. As people began to worship the beast, the aspirations of Christianity, the hopes of Christ, were replaced with the Jewish ideals of consumerism and secular humanism. Verse 4, 
and the third poured his bowl out into the rivers and the springs of the waters. And they became blood. And I heard the messenger of the water saying, You are righteous, he who is and who was the Holy One, because you have judged these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They are deserving. And I heard the altar saying, Yeah, Prince, yeah, Almighty, true, Yahweh Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This, to me, represents all of the resulting wars stemming from the acceptance of humanism and the Jewish influence over Christianity. The first of those major wars was the War of Northern Aggression, the American Civil War. Verse 8, And the fourth poured his bowl out upon the sun and had given, and had given to it to burn men with fire. And the men had been burned by great heat, and they blasphemed the name of Yahweh, who, was, who has authority over all these plagues, and they did not repent to give honor to him. The sun in the Revelation often seems to represent the powers of worldly governments as ordained by God, who has authority over these plagues. In this age, the governments of Adam kind have become tyrannies. People curse, blaspheme, and deny God when they are affected by these plagues, when they are tyrannized by unrighteous, by unrighteous governments. Although they, were, they are affected by these plagues because they worship the beast system and not God himself. Our people, oppressed by a, a burdensome government, have not yet turned to God. Verse 10. And the fifth angel poured his bowl out upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and their tongues strove from the toil, and they blasphemed the God of heaven from their toils, yet, and their sores, yet they did not repent from their works. How often do we hear, why does God permit such things to be so? Or what kind of God would allow such a thing? Humanism has replaced God because God is considered to be unfair. No longer do the governments of the world act as Christian governments. Because we as a people have worshipped the beast, as we shall see in Revelation chapter 17, which is a recapitulation of these things in many respects, our kingdom has been handed over to the beast. We chose the beast. Now the beast runs the kingdom. Real simple. Remember the trial of Job. Satan challenged Yahweh that if Job were to be touched by adversity, he would curse Yahweh. Yahweh therefore allowed Job to be denuded of all which he had by Satan, and Job suffered greatly. But Job never cursed God. In the end, Job was rewarded many times over. 
This should continue to serve as our model today whenever we are tried or suffered damage from this beast system. And even though we as aware Christians do, we hope, praise God and, and give glory to, to our God and recognize him as sovereign, we can't help but be affected by the punishment of the greater society around us. Verse 12, and the sixth angel poured his bowl out upon the great river Euphrates and its waters dried up in order that the way of the kings from the rising of the sun or the kings from the east should be prepared. The industrialization of Asia which began in the 19th century, prepared the way of the kings of the East to gain power over Christendom. Today, through the industrialization of China and Japan and the other Asian states, through Jewish capitalism, they hold a great amount of power and influence over Christendom. They have also become militarized at the expense of Christendom. These peoples of Asia would never have been allowed or, or, I'm sorry, they would never have been able to rise to the level where they could be any plausible threat against us if it were not for internationalist capitalism, for the Jew knows no boundaries and the Jew has no allegiances to any other people. It is only natural that eventually the parasite will destroy the host. Verse 13 You'll think I'm nuts after I explain verse 13. And I, and I saw from out of the mouth of the dragon and from out of the mouth of the beast and from out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Yahweh God, I believe, indeed has a sense of humor. Frogs have no prior allegorical use in scripture. They are one of the plagues of Egypt. However, it is certain that the reference to frogs in the Exodus must be taken literally. One clue to the use of the word here, I just can't overlook, uh, and it's going to sound nuts, but I, I just, I have to do it. While it is not an intention here, to continually insult the French people, and they were as much victims of circumstance in the French Revolution as were the Germans, the English, and the Americans in the torments which followed. The use of the term frog to describe a Frenchman has been extant throughout the English-speaking world for over 200 years. And I can't find any Old Testament allegory which can point me to what this term frog might mean. Since it's been used for over 200 years in our English-speaking world to describe a Frenchman, to me this may indeed be an indication as to the nature of the unclean spirits which emanate from the mouth of the false prophet. A lot of argument a lot of rational or emotional argument can be made concerning which isms or which philosophies 
these three unclean frogs represent, or even the nature of the false prophet. Oh, Muhammad's the false prophet. No, Muhammad is a false prophet. He's not the false prophet. Satan, the Jew, to me, is the false prophet. However, all of the philosophies, all of the isms, which have been promoted and forced into our Christian society by our enemies, can be summarized in and have been cloaked by the supposed ideals of the French Revolution, which are found in the slogan, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, which is still the national motto of France today. Through these ideals have gone out all of the Jewish ideas into the world. The ideas of liberty and freedom and equality and brotherhood, which are contrary to the covenant relationship which Christians have with their God. Christians are not supposed to be free. They are supposed to be servants of Christ and keep his commandments. Christians do not have equality. Wives and children are supposed to be subject to their husbands and fathers, Ephesians 5. 21 through 33, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5. And each of us has an unequal portion in the diverse gifts of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Matthew 25, 15. Christians are not equal in the sense that the Jews would like us to believe. Christians are supposed to have brotherhood only with those of their kin who are also Christians. Christians are not to have community or fellowship whatsoever with non-Christians. 2 John, verses 9 through 11, proves that. The Jewish ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity are ideals which lead, which led, I'm sorry, to the decline of Christian society into the cesspool of human licentiousness. All of the cries for diversity, racial equality, sexual liberation, and every other philosophy detrimental to sound Christian society, which has been made these past 200 years, have been based upon these Jewish ideals, this slogan of the French Revolution, and Jews have been their chief instigators and promoters. Verse 14. For they are the spirits of demons making signs which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited earth to gather them to battle, the battle of the great day of Yahweh, the Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he being alert and keeping his garments, that he would not walk naked and they would see his shame. And he gathered them into the place called, in Hebrew, Harmageddon. Harmageddon. An R, or Har, is a mountain. Megiddo means place of crowds. The events described here 
can be paralleled to the events described in Ezekiel chapter 38. All of the alien nations of the world are gathered to battle against the people of God. While an actual military invasion cannot be um, discounted, this situation has been transpiring for at least 50 years now, since the Christian nations have begun to be overrun overrun with massive non-European immigration by all of the world's other, other races. The beasts of Jeremiah 31.27, which are also the beasts of Isaiah 56.9. This situation is described as culminating in Revelation chapter 19, and it will be discussed at length there. Let's look at this. Um, Behold, as I come as a thief, I be, blessed is he being alert and keeping his garments, that he would not walk naked and they would see his shame. And, and I didn't include this in the notes posted on Christ right, but I will add it later. What are his garments? Christians have cloaked themselves in the blood of the Lamb. And the reference to walking naked and being in shame is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 3. Christians, the people of the covenants which Yahweh made with Jacob Israel, our ancestor, we better be caught with other Christians in the last days. If we're caught with the seed of beasts like Eve was, we will be caught naked and we will be in shame. I would stay out of bed with the serpents. I just had to add that. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured his bowl out upon the air, and a great voice came from, from out of the temple, from the throne, the throne of Yahweh, saying, It has happened. And there were lightnings and noises and thunders, and it was a great earthquake, such as had not happened from when man had come to be upon the earth, was such an earthquake so great. And the great city broke into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon had been remembered before Yahweh to give to her the cup of the wine of the wrath of his anger. And every island and the mountains were not found. And a great hailstorm like boulders descends from out of heaven upon men. And the men blasphemed Yahweh from the plague of the hailstorm, because the plague of it is exceedingly great. These last verses describe the fall of Babylon. It cannot be commented upon yet, because it has not yet happened. Verses 17 and 18, I'm sorry, chapters 17 and 18, which follow, shall discuss this same thing, the fall of mystery Babylon, in greater detail. And they shall offer, also offer a poetic portrayal of mystery Babylon itself. Yahweh willing, I will be here to discuss that next week. Thank you. Good night and praise Yahweh.